Welcome to Pod on the Hill, Australia's only weekly Labor podcast where we discuss the political issues, events, people and campaign activities from home and abroad. I'm Claire Burns and I'm Victorian Labor's Assistant Secretary. Today's episode of Pod on the Hill is brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, championing the rights of everyday Australians since 1919. To find out more, visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Remember, Pod on the Hill is available every week on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions to ask of the show, email us at podcast at vic.alp.org.au. Today on the show, we are honoured and privileged to welcome the Deputy Leader of the Federal Labor Party, Richard Miles. Richard is also the member for Cario, the seat which covers the bulk of Geelong, and he's also Labor's shadow spokesperson for Defence. We speak to Richard about growing up in Geelong, his life before Parliament, the challenges of the Defence portfolio, and where his enthusiasm for snow globes began. Richard, welcome to Pot on the Hill. Good afternoon, Claire. Great to have you in Geelong. It's wonderful to be here. It's such a stunning day outside, it and is. the bay just looks magnificent with it, the sun hitting it like that. It's absolutely right, and it is a. It's a. Um, I think for Melbourne people, they don't necessarily get what how beautiful Geelong is. There's this. The entrance to Geelong is. Uh, refinery and uh, used to be Ford and so very industrial mm. and, and I think that has characterised the way a lot of people from Melbourne see Geelong but when you actually get round to the waterfront mm-hmm. uh, which we can see outside of our windows which is obviously excellent radio for uh, our listeners. <laughs> really a view for radio. <laughs> a absolutely. view for radio but it is really stunning north facing bay um, and on a day like today it is, it is just a picture. And I think so many people travel past Geelong you've got yeah. the freeway that bypasses it and takes you down further along the coast um, but also when we talk about Geelong, we do talk about the industry down here, the various economic aspects, and you don't really mention the beauty or the natural mm. environment that, yeah, it, look, that I, is Geelong. I think that's right. So uh, Lonely Planet, um, mm. which is a remarkable kind of global success as a, uh, as a travel um, publishing house, has its origins in Footscray, actually, I think, in the right. western suburbs of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've always, had, us from Geelong, have always had an issue with Lonely Planet because for a long time, the Lonely Planet guide for Australia, when it got to Geelong, essentially literally had the words in it, keep driving. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. How rude. <laughs> it was really rude. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, to be fair to Lonely Planet, it's since changed that. I'd hope um, so. So that confirms what, what you were saying. Yeah. But, but the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a north-fronting bay. Mm. Um, it really is very beautiful. Beautiful, and the, and the road going around the bay, the Esplanade. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough in this role to travel a lot throughout the world, and it is it is absolutely world class. And there's not really a collection of heritage buildings, mm. city, if you like, mm-hmm. um, up against the water, which there is in Geelong, in, in, in really anywhere else in in Australia. Or yeah. but I guess Sydney has it against Circular Quay, but perhaps with the exception yes, of Sydney. Yeah. which is also quite quite an exceptional uh, landscape, isn't mm. it? Um, now, look, you did grow up here mm-hmm, in Geelong, and I'm keen to talk about. But I'm keen to start with your upbringing here mm-hmm. in Geelong. Now, your your father, Donald Mars Miles, was a was the former headmaster of. Geelong Grammar. Trinity Grammar. Trinity Grammar. So he was deputy principal at Geelong Grammar, which is, uh, and, and spent, oh, I think, 25 years uh, at Geelong Grammar. So it's actually where I grew up uh, because it's, it's a, um, 
a school where the staff live on campus. So And you went to that school. I went to the school. And so I'm I'm interested in what that's like. You start on your first day in most high schools and you're anonymous and get the chance to kind of flesh out your teenage self yep. as separate to who you were in your younger years, but you would have shown up on your first day with everybody already knowing a lot about you, I guess. Uh, well, in in a way, um, certainly certainly that would be true in relation to the, the teaching staff mm-hmm. um, because they all knew Dad very well yeah. and, and, and had known me, um, well, since I was a baby. Um, and so for and, – and for lots of them, um, not all of them, but for lots of them, I'd, I'd known them for as long as I could remember. I mean, I literally I had teachers who I cannot ever remember not knowing. Not knowing. Um it, it, the campuses were a bit different, so um, I, I went to the Geelong Grammar Primary School, which was in a different part of Geelong in those days. But um, uh, and my father was at the senior school, which is where we lived. Mm. So, and by the time I got to senior school, he then became he got a job as the principal of Trinity Grammar in Melbourne, and then I stayed on and, and boarded at Geelong Grammar. So it always felt to me a bit like. I think I was 11 years old. It felt like my parents had moved out of home. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. and, and I just stayed. And you got uh, to have – you had the uh, Kevin from Home Alone experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it – and look, I, I mean, I was very lucky. It was a it was a charmed childhood is the truth. Yeah. And, and a, just an amazing place to grow up. Mm-hmm. But very much a, a village. You know, we, we knew – all our neighbours. I mean, well, we knew them; they were our, our best friends. And so, and was that just a function of being growing up in sort of the sixties, seventies, eighties, where things were more like that in general in Australia, or was it because of the small town nature of I, I, where you were living? Yeah, I think it was a bit of both. I, I think, I think, with all the teachers living on staff. Um, the school was a little mm. village. I mean, it was like this sort of little English village in the corner of Corio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it had that character about it. Um, but Geelong also was was not a very big place. Mm. In many ways, it's not a big place now. And, you know, one of the things I love about living in this town now is you, you do run into people you know all the time. Um, and there is a, a really wonderful sense of community about this place which I think you know is a bit different to living in a in a bigger city yeah sure and so your so your dad was obviously an important figure in the community Mm. um but your tell us about your mother Faye because she was really a trailblazer she was Victoria's first equal opportunity commissioner and and later on she was the chancellor of the University of Melbourne so I'm interested in knowing what growing up with such a talented and driven woman as your Mm. mother um, and and as your role model was like for you, and what did it teach you? Well, uh, yeah, Mum was a huge figure in in my life, um, and in a sense, I felt like I was. I had three older sisters, so it's, and my the youngest of those is eight years older than me. Right. Um, so there's a six year gap between the three sisters, mm-hmm. then eight years, then me. Mm-hmm. And so listeners can draw their own conclusions as to the degree to which I was expected. Um, but, but I think uh, I, I was a happy accident. Um, but it did mean that I felt as I was growing up that I was sort of being raised by a tribe of women, yeah. um, having having this uh, group of, of uh, women who were all, my sisters very much, all very strong personalities and have all gone on and done remarkable things. I mean, mum, mum is an amazing figure. She went to Melbourne University during the Second World War. One of the interesting things about that time was that uh, when the war was going on, a lot of young men were fighting on the front. Mm. Um, 
almost uh, as part of the war effort in order to keep the universities going, women were encouraged to go and study. So Melbourne Uni in those days were almost all women students. And mum would argue that the, the, the feminist movement of the, the 60s and 70s owes quite a lot to that generation of women who had the experience of going through university, which they might not otherwise have had, but for the Second World War and, and, the, and the, the encouragement to get women into the universities, which was principally about keeping the universities going, um, but was um, a, a wonderful opportunity for her. Um, she then had uh, started having kids. Um, for more than 20 years was at home with a, with a family. Um, decided she wanted to go back to university, and Melbourne University remarkably gave her credit for subjects that she'd done in the 1940s. Fantastic. When she went back wow. in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And she says to this day, she probably wouldn't have gone back and completed her master's, but for that, um, she becomes an academic and um, at Melbourne Uni, and then from there, she gets the job as Victoria's first Tech Opportunity Commissioner. Mm. I, I like that story because it says, small acts like that, can make a huge difference in people's lives. You know, when you've got a marginal choice, do I, don't I, do something, mm, mm. Um, and there's just a bit of encouragement there, it, c it can change the world, and it certainly did for mum. Um, and, you know, she was a, um, a, a really um, significant, powerful force, I think, in the state, but certainly at home. And, and I guess what that gave me with, with my sisters combined was a sense that, you know, a women's place within our society, within the workforce, always seemed to me to be completely normal and natural. I mean, mm. how could it be any different? Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of attitudes that existed about what women could or couldn't do um, back in, in those days and perhaps earlier, you know, in our household never existed. I mean, that all felt anachronistic from day one. So so I think, you know, I was blessed with, I guess, having having those role models really early on. And what opportunity, when it is presented, as you said before, can mm. really do if yeah. someone's in a position to seize it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and mum, um, you know, she worked very hard. She So, so in those early years, she was commuting um, from Geelong to Melbourne, which of course lots of people do. Um, but um, uh, it, it was a, it was a big effort, and um, but but we were, we were all really proud of her. Um, I very clearly remember uh, the Deborah Wardley case. Uh, Deborah Wardley was uh, an airline pilot who uh, had topped or come second in the kind of uh, course which pilots go through to get admittance into ANSET. Um, but she wasn't given a job, and it became clear that she had done really well in in these tests and should have, by virtue of that, been a walk-up start to get a job as a pilot. Um, and that became a, a real test case about um, women's role in the workforce, particularly in a, in a place where, or in a profession where women hadn't participated. And a whole lot of ridiculous arguments were put forward about why women couldn't be airline pilots, which of course today seem completely silly. But, but that was the fight. Um, and I've since met Deborah. Um, right. And... and Having mum at the, the forefront of that fight was, you know, as a young kid, was really inspiring. And what was the outcome of the... Oh, she, she, she got the... She became a pilot. Fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, and had a career as, mm. as an airline pilot, mm. As, mm. as she should have. So you've had uh, this tribe of women raising you. Your dad is a big figure within the school. That's a quite a remarkable upbringing, particularly growing up in that school environment. What's mm. your best memory of your childhood, do you think? What's something that stands out growing up as a fond, really fond memory with yeah. such a big family? Well, I, 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 I certainly um, 
do feel like it was a, it was a charmed existence um, in that place, and um, and and as I say, the sense of community, like lots of kids that I played with, who you know I still see from time to time today. Um, I think in terms of Geelong at that at that time in in the seventies. Uh, I, I I was very involved in swimming, and so um, in going to various swimming carnivals around Geelong is, is a memory which which looms large. Um, of course, this town is very much about the Geelong Football Club, mm. and I was going to Kennedy Park from a very young age, and um, and have lots of memories of particular games um, that were played there. But the whole sensation of being at that ground when we win particularly mm-hmm. um which in those days didn't happen as frequently as it does now but <laughs> but it's it, it, you know they say disneyland is the, the happiest place on earth I, I i think i'd put a challenge to that i, I think cadenia park after geelong's just one is about the happiest place on earth everyone <laughs> has a kind of smile on their face which they just can't take off and yeah. uh, are just walking around with this happy glow and and that is very much the case to this day but i really remember it as a kid and you would have seen a lot of changes to cadenia park in that time i oh, suppose it, it would have been quite a different not only atmosphere but physical space as well yeah completely different mm. and i mean you know and it needed to change obviously as as geelong went from being a, a team in a state competition to trying to in a way be an unlikely participant from regional australia and it's the only participant from regional australia in a, in a national competition so um Cadinia park needed to change and it's and and labor state and federal have been big players in enabling the the ground to be transformed into the stadium that it is today which is fantastic in terms of enabling the football club to remain a, a feature of of geelong but it is a big feature of Geelong, and it's it's it. it, it I think it, it. I really remember um, in two thousand and seven, which of course was the um, a lot happened in two thousand and seven. <laughs> it's a big year. It was a big year. It was <laughs> it, 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 for, for Labor supporters. It was of course the year that uh, we swept power in the Rudd slide. Um, for Geelong fans, it was also the year where um, the drought was broken—a forty-four year drought. Um, and so, and the, the grand final week is obviously the end of September, the elections are in November. So I was door knocking in grand final week. Mm. Um, and what was uh, amazing to me is that I reckon as I was going around Geelong, two houses in three would have some identification, um, streamers in the window, a poster on the door around the Geelong Football Club. There is no other social phenomenon in this town or, I dare say, any other place in Australia which would yield that sense of cohesion. I mean, literally two houses in three. The whole place was um, just uh, electrified with with what was about to happen. Mm. Um, And it was a... um, You know, it was was a genuinely remarkable day. Um, And we're quite tribal human beings aren't we we by nature by yeah. our dna we like to group around something yeah. and i think in politics is one way in which we exhibit that trait but yeah. football is uh, absolute well sport really sport finding a team and identifying yeah. with that is such a strong thing that we are drawn to i think that's right and, it, and it's 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 it is something about the idea that um, it, it happens by birth, you know, mm. which, which is tribalism. Um, Hereditary. It's, it, it's, <laughs> it, it, I think in, in an urbanised um, sort of more anonymous society that we perhaps live in today, uh, I think football does um, fulfil that need. Um, but it's also submitting yourself to 
a, a story that really you don't have much control over. We don't have any control over. And mm. I mean, it's all being played out by professionals Live on the field drama. who have nothing to do with you. Yeah. And yet you're completely emotionally invested. And if that goes well, you're happy. And if it doesn't go well, you're sad. I mean, there's something deeply irrational about yeah. that, obviously. But, <laughs> yeah. but I think it's the very giving over of yourself mm. to that process, which mm. which is what's wonderful about it. But um, I, I re- And there was a lot of downtimes in following Geelong during that drought, which is the, the time I grew up barracking for Geelong. There's a wonderful story, which which is uh, it might be apocryphal. I, I hope it's true, but but it, it's told about that day on which Geelong won the grand final, where Geelong was playing Port Adelaide. It was a blowout. You know, we we won by a lot, um, and so there's a bit of a question that you can talk to Geelong supporters about, which is, at what point during the day did you think we'd won? Um, but certainly by three quarter time, we're a long way in front. There was a woman who. Uh, at three-quarter time, it is said she realised we were going to win, turned off the TV, got her radio, uh, got in the car and went to Eastern Cemetery, mm. um, found her husband's grave um, and sat next to it, uh, turned on the radio because she wanted to be with her husband and to share this moment with him uh, as Geelong won its first grand final in 44 years. Um, she did that mm. and as she looked around, the cemetery was full of a whole lot of other people mm. who were doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, it's, it, it's a beautiful story uh, which just speaks to how important this club is um, to, to Geelong and how very significant that day was. It is a beautiful story and I think you're right. It shows the depth to which people feel mm. these highs and these lows mm. and the connection to the club and the mm. community that they have. Absolutely. Um, you've mentioned 2007. You entered Parliament in 2007. You successfully won pre-selection the year before and I, want, I do want to talk about that. But before we talk about your life in Parliament, I am interested in knowing what your first paying job was. So you've grown up in the area and you've gone to school and then when did you enter the, the working world? What did you get up to? Oh, uh, well, I, I, my first paying job, I guess, really um, was uh, as a uh, an assistant teacher. That's that's putting it in an, in a nice way. It was their dog's body <laughs> okay. at, a, at a prep school in uh, Oxford um, right. in England. So I had a gap year, yeah, um, between school and university. Mm. Um, so I didn't. It sounds. Fancy that I was in Oxford. I had nothing Sounds to do with very the nice, I had, yeah. It was nice. It was really nice. I had nothing to do with the university okay. other than I went to the same pubs that the students okay. went to. Um, but I, I didn't buy do yourself learning. a jumper so that when you came back, it looked <laughs> exactly. like maybe it looked it, like yeah. it. Yeah. But um, but it was an incredible um, experience. Mm. Um, I did that when when I was at university. I did you know tutoring jobs. I, I worked um, part time at law firms. Um, yeah. Uh, and then at Slater and Gordon, which is where I ended up uh, doing my articles. Okay, there you go. And mm. so you, you you did work as a solicitor for a period of time. Um, I, I did. I did. Um, my wife, who who is a solicitor to this day, whenever I claim to have worked as a solicitor, she says I wasn't a real solicitor. <laughs> okay. um, but yes, I, I did. So I did my articles, and I, I am an admitted uh, barrister and solicitor of the Supreme Court of Victoria. There you um, go. But basically. Um, 
having completed my articles at Slater's, then went to the Transport Workers Union, um, where and I was their National Legal Officer. Yeah, and so how did I'm interested in knowing what drew you to that role with our with our good comrades at the union? What took you off into that part of uh, lawyerism? Well, well, perhaps the starting point of that is, like, I was always interested in politics. Mm. Um, I guess as we've described my upbringing, that that might explain it. But but doing being involved in some way, I mean, not necessarily as an MP, but being involved in some way in in the Labor movement, I think was an early desire. And certainly that played out for me in student politics and I was, I was deeply involved in that. So by the time I get through university, it is really clear to me that I want to be in the Labor movement. Now, for me, that I thought was probably going to be Slater and Gordon and I felt like as a Labor law firm, it was very much a part of the Labor yeah, movement. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Um, and... And I, I really imagine that that's probably where I would end up spending quite a bit of time. But um, the, the specific answer to the TW was really one of opportunity. The, the, a, a job came up as the as the national legal officer. It looked good. Um, it, it, it people felt like I would have a chance of getting it. Um, so I threw my hat in the ring, um, not necessarily expecting to get it, but ultimately did. And 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 then the rest was history. So I, I don't. Being in the labour movement was something I clearly wanted to be in. Being in the union movement wasn't as clear. But then having got there mm. and spending what, 14 years in the union movement, uh, I'm so grateful that I, I had that opportunity. I, I, I learnt a heap. Uh, and, you know, I think it's probably been uh, – well, not pro- it has certainly been the most important – professional experience I've had that, that shaped me as an adult and my thinking around politics and and the rights of working people in our society. And do you think there was a seed planted? You mentioned the case that your mother worked on as mm. Equal Opportunity Commissioner with Deborah Wardley mm. uh, at ANSET. Do you think the seed was planted there, perhaps even if you weren't quite aware of it that and it later germinated when you stepped into Slater's or into the TWU with workers' rights and justice for people wanting to, to be at work and uh, be I, treated fairly? Yeah, definitely. I, I think growing up that always felt clear to me. And, you know, this um, week in Parliament we've been talking a lot about Bob Hawke and, and his passing and on, on Wednesday we did a, a series of um, sp- speeches. Indeed, it was a remarkable but wonderful honour to Bob that that every speech on Wednesday in both chambers was about him. Mm. Um, but I really remember him as a figure in the seventies um, when he was president of the ACTU, uh, and I kind of had probably unusually maybe um, a, an early interest in politics. I really remember Bob Hawke in the nineteen seventies when he mm. was president of the ACTU uh, as this this huge figure, and and from an early age I. You know, perhaps unusually, maybe it, some might say a little unhealthily, uh, an interest in in politics and the way I did. He sort of loomed large in my imagination, a bit like a sports hero. But he was this larger than life figure, yeah. you know, on our screens, sparkling with energy, kind of oozing with charisma, um, you know, that playful smile, but also that that power of speech, which really was a, a weapon on, you know, on in the service of the downtrodden, you know, the the, the underprivileged. So. He, he was this heroic figure. I mean, that's a kind of a youthful vision of him, mm. um, but that's how I saw it then. So the idea of um, unions and and helping people at work was in my head from an early age. I would say when I was at Slater and Gordon, uh, 
when we were representing working people who'd been injured at work, um, that becomes a lot more real. I mean, you're, you're seeing people who are not particularly empowered, who have had, uh, you know, injuries. Actually, you know, the repetitive injuries are the ones that kind of stick out to me because that there's it's it's not a random event. It, mm. it, it, it's a it's a build it's a, up. It's a build up, which is a direct function of whatever they've been asked to do. And the consequences of that build-up, the injury that they've then incurred, um, become so damaging for them through the rest of their life. So all of that was very much there, which is why when when the job came up, I, it it did it was was interesting to me. But it's a very different thing working in a union. I found at least compared to working at the law firm doing representing unions and their members. Um, and then different again working at a union compared to working at a peak body like the ACTU, which you then went on to do. Absolutely. And, and what I would say about the, 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 the TW, which it, which it really gave me in a very kind of granular way, is just this sense in which our movement is, is rooted in the rights that people have in the workplace and that they have fought for through collective action. Mm. Um, this is a team sport. It's it's not it's not been done by individuals. It's been done by people working together, and it's the act of um, walking arm in arm, which mm. actually empowers people to change their reality. That's a deep part of what we're on about, and and I really saw that uh, viscerally, I guess, working at a union. Because if you're not organised and you don't have support on the on the shop floor, you you, you know that directly affects the ability to get. A result for um, those people, um, and so so so. The, the, I guess what we're saying is the the very nature mm. of solidarity yeah. um, became very present, um, and 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 how and and the significance of that in terms of our mission, I guess, in the labour movement. I, I don't think I had experienced so clearly as I did at the TW, and I doubt I would have had I not gone there. The ACTU, on top of that, then gave me a much um, better kind of helicopter view of the Australian economy as a whole, how Australia works. Um, you know, I got to see public sector, private sector, um, various different industries within the country, um, how when that all came together through the, through, uh, I guess, the, the economy, but in a, in a working sense, how the various different awards work together and how those rights then accumulated uh, to give us a, an industrial relations system. Um, it taught me a lot, I think, about the way Australia works and, and it was a really – I was very lucky to get that opportunity. And because you were there right at the ACTU but right before par you went into Parliament mm -hmm. and not too – you know, and and within that first swing through your – through us being in government in that first phase of your parliamentary career, you were given the portfolio of um, uh, Trade Minister. Uh, right at the end, I was right the trade, trade Minister. So the, the starting uh, – my first job actually was uh, industry and innovation, um, which, which was a really good role um, in terms of industry policy and seeing how government can play a role, and it's Labor governments who play this role, but the Conservatives just don't, aren't interested in this kind of policy, but how government can play a role uh, in ensuring that we do have 
thriving industries with capability. Um, the, it, it, it's obviously the economic impact of, of those industries, but it's understanding that what skills, what uh, technological capability we have in our society goes a long way to defining the kind of economy and the society that we are. And do you um, feel like your, your experience there with the ACTU and seeing the economy Definitely. broadly shaped you yeah. in such a way that you were ready to take that? Yeah, and I, and I think there's no doubt that 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 I think was very complementary to them mm. doing that role. There was also science sits with that, so there was a, a large scientific component to that and when I was at Melbourne Uni I did a law degree but I did a, a science degree as well um, and uh, and so I'm a bit of a sort of science nerd mm. and so I felt like during that time I was Australia's chief science tourist again to the various <laughs> kind of installations that Australia has around the place in the, in the science world and so that was that was uh, a great experience also. I can imagine. Mm. Uh, speaking of portfolios, um, we, uh, I do want to touch on current times and, yeah. and the positions within the party and the parliament that you hold. Um, before we talk about those, I, I think we should discuss, as you mentioned before, that the 46th parliament did sit for the first time this week. Mm-hmm. And before we sort of dive into some of the new roles as well as the roles that you've continued on, um, before we talk about those, we probably should touch on the election loss. I don't want to dwell on it. I think there's been plenty of that and the parliament has begun now, so let's sort of look forward. But um, I think it was probably particularly upsetting for a lot of people, knowing now what the coalition will do because, as they've been returned to power. Um, what was what was your take on the mood up in Canberra this past week and, and how's the caucus feeling? Look, I, the caucus, I think, is in, all things considered, actually, is in really good shape. Mm-hmm. Uh what was good about this week um, in at, at, at the sort of meta level, I suppose, was that it, it, it's a moment now where we can, I think, move on a bit. Like we're back in the fray. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of grief about what occurred on the 18th of May and I think that's the only word that you can use to describe how we have all felt about it. And I'm not saying that that's done and dusted. I think... Uh, you know, there's still a lot of pain around, and people need to work that through. But everyone I've spoken to has talked about which stage of it they're in. Yeah, no one's exactly. quite sure, but they know that they're at some points. They're not through the other side yet. No, we're not through <laughs> the other side. I'm certainly not. But, <laughs> but what was good about this week was just to remind ourselves that there is a contest to be had. That um, there's a lot of people out there who did vote for us, millions of Australians, uh, and they expect us to do a job in holding this government to account and. Uh, it, it matters that we, you know, get up and running as quickly as we can to do that. And and so, um, at least for me, I, I, and I think a lot of others who in the caucus who I spoke to, there was, you know, it's good to be back into this so that we can, we can move on. And and it was really affirming to have an entire day in that week devoted to Bob Hawke because mm. what that meant. For me, but but for all of us who spoke, and I think most of the caucus spoke on on that on that condolence motion, um, was a um, an affirmation about why we are in the party that we are. Um, that he he was an example of our party at its greatest uh, during the Hawke Keating years, and uh, and it just reminded us of the power of government, what what we can do as as progressives when we do it well in government, uh, how we can change the, the country so much for the better, which is what Bob Hawke and Paul Keating did. Um, 
but also, you know, I think it gave us a bit of a determination that um, sitting on the opposition benches is, is not where we should be, you know, and we've got to do what we need to do to get onto the other side of that chamber so we can start to, um, you know, affect change going forward. And, and, and the hardest feeling for me actually coming out of the election is just... Uh, the lost opportunity of these three years. Mm. It, 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 no, I mean, this is not a good government. Um, <laughs> by you know, any that, stretch. That, it, by any stretch. Mm. I mean, it's it, it's a conservative government and we don't believe in, in what they do. Um, but more than that, it's a hopeless government. Mm. Um, a government that's given us three prime ministers in six years, five defence ministers in the same amount of time. I mean, a whole lot of issues which don't necessarily divide... Um, Labor and Liberal, um, but face the country nevertheless. Yeah. This this mob just aren't up for dealing with, mm. and um, and yet you know that's who's going to be there for the next three years. And um, there is a deep sense inside of me we cannot afford to let them govern any you know more days than they are already going to. We must win the next election, um, and we've got to find that fierce determination to get that result in three years' time. And I really think that determination is there. Now, in, in addition to being deputy leader, you mentioned uh, the revolving door of defence ministers that the coalition have provided the country. You've retained your shadow defence minister role. Mm. Defence is widely seen as a challenging portfolio, regardless of whether you're in opposition or government. I'm interested to know how you found it and what some of the challenges are that you've faced in your time in that in that shadow portfolio? It, well, it's been a, a, a massive learning experience for me. Uh, I, it, it is a vast area which I, I sort of understood in, a, in a, a fuzzy way maybe before going into the role, but which has become much clearer for me as I've been doing this over the last three years. Defence is really the... Well, arguably, the, the, the biggest thing that the Commonwealth Government does. Certainly, if you measure it by employment, it's easily the biggest thing that the mm -hmm. Government does, meaning um, there's, there'd be more than 100,000 people employed in the work of defence right. through the That's government huge. when you include the Defence Force, the mm. department, which is the largest department in the Commonwealth. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the next biggest area, which is uh, government services, Centrelink and the like, is, yeah. you know, some, um, don't quote me on this, but it's something like fifteen to 20,000 people right. are employed in that. So there's really, there's kind of defence and then there there is clear air. And while, while that doesn't describe the full uh, kind of, the relative size of the of the political space uh, between defence and other portfolios, it, it does at least say there's a lot going on here, and mm. so there is a lot to learn, um, and a lot that can be um, done. I, I and that observation right there has probably been the most important thing for me in coming to terms with this. So, defence is the biggest property owner in Australia. Right. It, it means yeah. that from that point of view, there's a whole lot of issues around defence estate management, which actually have a big impact. Um, the, and the, is that in terms of all of the bases and the yeah. barracks as well as personnel housing? And Absolutely. Right. And when you put it all together, it's the, it's, it's the biggest property owner in the country. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, the way in which we perhaps see it, um, that, that the impact, the economic impact, if I can put it that way, of, of, of defence and its spend within Australia is through defence industry. Um, where in states like uh, South Australia, um, Western Australia, but it'll happen in Victoria too in terms of supplying into that supply chain. Um, the, the building of uh, the next generation of offshore patrol vessels, of frigates and then submarines, um, it's going to employ thousands of people mm. um, 
as important as that, it's going to involve the development of as high-end technology in this country as anything else that is done in Australia. Um, that has the potential to have a, a massive impact on helping Australia climb the technological ladder, um, as well as, of course, playing, I think, uh, and this is under done in terms of its explanation by the government, as well as having a really big impact on the strategic weight uh, of Australia globally. Um, so all of that is fascinating mm -hmm. um, and, and has can have a, a big impact on a country. And then you really get to the, the, the larger kind of strategic side of, you know, why do we have a defence force? What does it do? Our place in the world? Mm. Those sort of questions. And in that sense, Australia today faces probably the most challenging set of strategic circumstances that it has since the Second World War. And part of that is because how we navigate our way forward in the world today is... is um, as as unobvious or unclear um, as it's as it's been, there, there are a lot of complex issues that we need to resolve. We we are in a an alliance with the United States, which which I'm a very strong believer in, and is is as relevant, probably more relevant today than it's ever been. Um, that that's critically important. But we're watching uh, in our neighbourhood China rise, which is a good thing in terms of of, of our economy, but is a challenging thing as well in terms of. Uh, a great power seeking to assert itself and doing as great powers do, seeking to shape um, a, a rules-based order around the world which has served us well, really, since the Second World War. All of those things are pretty complex. Um, mm. And uh, working that through is, is, you know, I think is going to be as significant a public policy challenge uh, for government uh, now as any uh, across the field of government. And it's for all those reasons that, you know, I'm really pleased to be staying in this area and you know, love it actually. Absolutely. I've heard um, one of the Democratic uh, primary candidates, one of the, um, in one of the debates recently, or maybe it wasn't another debate, it was in an interview, described the military as sort of like um, a surgeon. You never want to have to have surgery, mm. but if you do, you want a really good surgeon. And it's, I thought it was an interesting analogy to sort of simplify how we view our defence force and our military in relation to ever having to engage in com combat or conflict. Um, you want a, one that's ready to go, but you don't ever really want to have to use them. <laughs> uh, look, I think, I think that's, that's right. And, and, and seeing it in, you know, in, in that, you know, defensive sense, that that's obvious, obviously right. And, um, the act of any operational theatre is a very the act of war is, is a very uh, significant thing and not done lightly and you don't want it to happen. One of the observations I would make is that we've we've had Australians in operational theatres now for a long time and we we have a number now and I've been privileged enough to go and see Australians do that work in theatre. Um, when you look at what our servicemen and women are doing in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, in essence what you've got there are, are two countries who, who have put their hands up and said they need help. Mm. Um, and we are one of those nations in the world that when a country does that, comes to lend a hand. That's, that's a really, we should be one of those countries. That is a good thing for us to be doing. And, um, and I've, I've watched firsthand um, Australian personnel providing training and assistance to uh, Iraqis, to Afghans, um, helping them to um, move, we hope, into a, into a post-conflict world where they can build their nations and have the same kind of security and prosperity that we enjoy, although that's a long road ahead for both of those countries. 
But the point I was going to make is that in seeing what our servicemen and women are doing there, it, it does make you feel really proud. And, and it, 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 they are doing good things for people who you know, are nowhere near as fortunate as us. Um, and, and that's a large part of what our Defence Force is doing um, in various UN missions from the Middle East through to South Sudan. Um, you know, Australians are out there actually through their engagement in the military making the world a safer mm. but a better place and a fairer place. I think um, I remember my first in understanding of the military being effectively so a, a, a force for peace mm. is when it, during East Timor exactly back in the 90s yeah. and really realising, oh, wow, this is the other side yeah. to what you understand when you watch TV or movies about the military. Totally. And it, 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 the East Timor is a great example. Mm. Uh, Solomon Islands, um, the regional assistance mission, Solomon Islands, which um, I visited on a number of occasions, mm. is, is another example. And both of those are good examples because they're, they're in our region. Um, and they represented uh, Australia playing, you know, a bigger role, a leadership role within our region, which I actually think the countries of the Pacific are very keen for Australia to to step up and, and demonstrate that interest and engagement in the region, and and our military is certainly not the only way by any means, but it's but it's a significant way in which we we do that, mm. um, and it's and it's something that by and large is really welcomed. I mean, if you look at the uh, the engagement that occurs between the Australian Defence Force and the PNG Defence Force, um, they greatly appreciate that relationship. Um, Fiji is, is, has, has a long historic relationship between the two militaries. It mm. had a, a sort of a difficult patch there, but that's coming back online. And um, a lot of... I, I was at a graduation at Duntroon last week um, and uh, a number of Fijian officers were graduating from Australian provided training um, which is a really valuable of valuable assistance to uh, to Fiji so there, there's um, it, it forms a part of the way in which Australia can reach out and and help countries within our within our region which is so important that we do um, and as you say as a force for peace um, our region actually is is we have not seen great development, um, certainly against the Millennium Development Goals. The Pacific probably was uh, the, the part of the world which performed the worst. That was a relative measure about how fast development was occurring. But what that means is, uh, by a number of measures, if nothing changes, then within a decade, this will be, in fact, the least developed part of the world in absolute terms, mm. the place where you have the shortest life expectancy, the worst maternal mortality rates... Um, that's in our region. And it are we contributing to, to that through, with, through our lack of aid uh, I, budget, I, or is it you know what? I think it, I think th the way I would describe that is I, I I think over the journey it's been our lack of intent. Mm. Um, we, we actually are quite present, so we are significant uh, aid donors. We have a significant diplomatic presence. Um, we have significant um, defence cooperation programs between the militaries of those countries and and the ADF, um, but. It, 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 to my mind, it has it has lacked um, direction and intent, uh, and the, the the sense in which the progress of the Pacific um, is central to Australia's standing in the world and how we see the world has not been as clear as I would have liked it. Um, I, I really hope that changes, and and it needs to change because you know from where I sit, this is a population of about ten million people in, in the Pacific. I think. 
their prosperity and their security absolutely is something has something to do with us as a nation and a people and where we sit in the world. Um, Defence uh, and and military to military engagement is a really significant part of, of that equation. Um, so. The, the, you know, mil- our military can play a really important role in in having Australia be taken more seriously in the world, but but also affecting the good things about Australia um, within countries in the world, and particularly within our region. Yeah, yeah. The last time we spoke, we spoke about being friends with those across the chamber on the other side of the floor (laughs) Uh, i'm interested in talking a bit more about that and digging Mm -hmm. a bit deeper in that area uh, particularly in how we relate to our political opponents and i'm curious in your on your thoughts about what makes a political rival a rival in any sense really but particularly a political rival worthy of esteem what would you because you've had you've had a long time in the parliament now and i'm sure you've made friends with people who aren't in the Labor Party. Yeah, I have. and In fact, who are in the Liberal or National Greens parties. I'd, and, I, and I have friends in all of them. Mm. Uh, and and I look, I have a view, and not everyone shares this view, but I have a view that it's, I think that's a healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's um, important to, to see the person in the, the people we relate to across the aisle. Um, and ultimately, I think... Feel that there is a sense in which sometimes we can get caught up in a belief that we're better people. I'm not sure we're better people. We're different people. We okay. believe in different things, okay. and and we passionately believe in that mm. difference. Um, but I think there are good, sincere people on the other side who who I like, um, and and I actually think that's a very important um, fact to acknowledge. I remember in about the first. I don't know, month of becoming a member of parliament, I was being driven by one of the, the Comcar drivers in, in Canberra. Um, and that driver was reasonably happy to give his advice about the world. And, <laughs> and he said, but he was wise and it was good advice. He okay. said, he said, um, he said, you won't want to hear this, but uh, you guys, Labor Liberal, you're much more alike than, than you ever think. Mm. Um, and what he's really trying to say is not that our politics was alike, sure. but that. Um, most people out in the world are not necessarily interested in politics. Everyone who goes into that building has does have a sincere interest in the way in which the country is governed and, and wants the best for Australia. Mm-hmm. That is actually a big thing to have in common. Um, and, uh, and, and as I say, how we give expression to that and, and what we think is in the interest of Australia, that differs wildly. But, but the basic sincerity of wanting to do the right thing and giving your life to the service of that actually is, you know, that, that he was right. There is a lot in common about that. Um, and it is a place from which you can have conversations, and, and we should. Um, but also, it is a bit like a boarding school up there. You know, we, 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 we spend a lot of time with each other. Mm. We, we, we sit in committees with each other. We, we find ourselves in the dining room together. Right. I, um, did, I did want to ask about that because I think it's one thing to be on a committee or to be working on policy with somebody from the opposing team but what is it that brings you together enough that you can decide oh this person's all right to have a beer with or you know i wouldn't like there's somebody that i could potentially be friends with well it, it, it the, the circumstances throw you throw you together so for example in in my first term i chaired the indigenous affairs committee we we did an inquiry about um 
the how well stores were shops that the community store and remote communities was operating because mm. they're a very important source of everything actually but but particularly nutrition so what's being sold in those shops has a lot to do um, with the health of those communities so we were traveling around pretty remote places and um, there were Liberal members of that committee, Labor members of that committee. We were there for a week. Right. Um, we're in sort of country motels. Yeah. Uh, it's dinner time. What are you going to do? Like yeah. it's not as though you're going to sit in separate places. Sure. And also you've had a common experience during the day. You've mm. been listening to hearings and and, and the experiences of, of uh, various people who'd shopped at the stores or owned the stores or operated the stores. Um, so you're kind of comparing notes. And before you know it, you're having a conversation about that, but you're also having a conversation about what are the kids doing, okay. where your family's at, yeah. you know, when you, what you're planning to do on the holiday. You get to know people. Mm. And uh, that's an example. But there are lots of different examples where various experiences in the parliament will will mean that you, you meet people across the aisle. Um, and... You know, I think life's too short to kind of <laughs> keep the, the, the fight going right through dinner. It's also know. exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. <laughs> and, and as I say, I, I personally actually strongly believe that it, it matters to to get to know um, who those people are and what makes mm. them tick and to be um, open to that. And and that that hasn't – none of that has, has shaken or changed my view – about the importance of, of Labor governments and what our mission is. In fact, you know, I, I feel that more strongly today than I ever have, and I think particularly after the 18th of May. Mm. And none of those experiences suddenly mean that I think, oh, well, actually, you know, the Morrison government's a good government, because mm. it's not. It, mm. it is not a good government. Um, but, but, you know, there are, uh, there are people in the Liberal Party, there are people in the Greens, there are people in the Nationals who are good people. Um, and... and it, 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 and an acknowledgement of that is the reality and it's something that I think is important and there are times where you need to work together. Mm. And then I think last time we spoke, it's, one of us made the point that it's not appreciating somebody for who they are as a person or seeing that humanity mm. in them doesn't mean that you are acquiescing to the way that they approach the world or approach government or um, think about things, but you can still share commonalities outside yeah. of how they decide that they think the country should be run. That's right. And, and, and because of, you know, we're dealing across a range of policy areas. I mean, the full spectrum of policy areas, but also the, the, the different ways in which the government is run. Um, now, some of those policy areas involve greater difference than others. If you're talking about... Um, industrial relations or you're talking about health or education where there is a really strong difference um, you know, that, 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 that partisanship matters because it, it, those go to the heart of, uh, of, of why we're in the Labor Party and why, why they're in the Liberal Party mm. um, Defence and foreign affairs not so much um, mm. they're, they're, it, it, I mean there are, there are issues and, and sometimes we do disagree but, but there's no obvious partisan divide in, in respect of those areas I mean, there will be on a little on some things. I think over the you know we we have been much more supportive of overseas development of aid than than the Liberals have been. But um, you know, on particular responses to issues overseas or or what should be Australia's strategic direction, that, that's, it's not obvious that that there's a partisan difference which which drives um, which drives the discussion. And so. Actually, having personal relationships which allow you to have a fulsome conversation with somebody on the other side of politics 
but on this issue, not necessarily divided, and they may well have thought about this in depth, I think is really important. But at another level, you know, this week, Tony Smith became, um, we, he was elected unopposed. We did not run a person against him as the Speaker of the House. That's, that's actually a rare honour. It, it, it's, it's in part a recognition of how fair Tony has been mm. as the Speaker mm. of the Parliament. I've actually known Tony um, for more than 30 years. We were right. at Melbourne Uni together when he was um, uh, in the Liberal Club and I was in the Labor Club um, <laughs> and, and we were friends there. And I made the remark in, in Parliament today, that in Parliament this week, I mean, that his politics have always been hopeless. But, but he's, <laughs> And he, it's a real shame uh, Bill Brindle didn't knock him off, but yeah. if we have to have him, but he, he but makes he, an all right speech. But he is a nice guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And... and 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 that's what I said, you know. And, yeah. and that's actually what I think. Yeah, no. Look, I feel that it's uh, that's been a lovely little philosophical uh, discussion for us to have had there yeah. in in that theme. Um, I'm curious to know for your great great grandchildren listening to this when they find it in a time capsule years from now, is there any wisdom that you would want to pass on to them, or anything that you feel like would be sage advice? Yeah, it, it's a um, big question. I, I, I think it, it, knowing who you are and, and, um, and not engaging in groupthink, having really been clear about your values, um, participating in collectives, in teams, because I think that's what it is to be a human. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of what we do is, is about working together um, and we and certainly that's the case in, in politics, but um, it's the case in a whole lot of endeavours in life. But you can do that without engaging in groupthink mm. and, and knowing your own mind and in knowing your own mind, having the courage to express it, which sometimes can be scary, particularly if your views are different from those around you. But sometimes... Um, you know, the, the one person who has the different thought is the one person who has the correct thought. Um, and, and a lot of times mistakes are made because that person isn't courageous enough to, to give expression to that thought. So I think having knowing yourself um, and having the courage to express it uh, and to express who you are and what you think um, in the context of working with other people, I, I guess, is the piece of wisdom I would want to pass on. Fantastic. I think that is very wise. Um, now, something you may also end up passing on is your snow globe <laughs> collection <laughs> i want to touch on that briefly why snow globes well it, it I, I have <laughs> i have hundreds um and uh it, it's uh, well i suppose the starting point there is that i, I think i'm a bowbird by nature i just like collecting things okay. <laughs> um downstairs uh in the meeting room i affectionately refer to it as the in-flight magazine room because i just need to take the in-flight magazine because it does say oh, right. on the cover it's your copy to take home yes, so true. i do <laughs> um, and, and there's about a thousand of them downstairs so but um i Are you had gonna scrapbook them one day or something oh, i don't think so okay. no. um i mean they they they, they did exist at home, um, at when my wife and I started uh, seeing each other, and snow and gloves or in-flight magazines, actually both. Oh. <laughs> um, and then um, Rachel pretty quickly had them banished to the garage. Okay. And uh, and then when I got elected to Parliament, I discovered I'd got an office here and in Canberra, so both Perfect. could come out. Beautiful. Um, and so they did. But but with the snow domes, I. Uh, Look, I think I had... I blame Savarina, who, who works with me. Um, Savarina 
Chirambolo, who's um, been my long-suffering um, assistant uh, <laughs> since the time of the ACTU. We've worked together now for 20 years. And She's so wonderful. Sav, I, loved, I love working with Sav when I've contacted her. Well, Sav clearly did something wrong in a past life to have, <laughs> have ended up with me for that, that period of time. But there was early on when we were working together, I think I had about, I don't know, 10, a dozen snow domes. Um, Sav kind of got a sense that this was something that I um, had a few of. She went on an extended um, holiday to Europe mm. um, and then came back with uh, about 20 right. uh, and managed to double my collection right there and then. <laughs> and so then I, I was collecting them it at that point. It was a thing And then it became a thing. And, and so 30 <laughs> then turned into 60. And once that happened, they literally start to breed in the sense sure. that people know you collect them mm-hmm. and so they will turn up, like mm-hmm. people will give them to you. Yes. Um, and from there, you know, 100s turned into about 400s. So. <laughs> That's quite, it's, uh, and now I am invested, so they're all beautifully set out. And do my, you get my, them for yourself when you go away? I do. I Fantastic. do now, yes, I'm completely invested. Um, a regular listener of Pod on the Hill posed this, this next question in the event that we were able to get you on the show. <clears throat> uh, and now, in your answer, they've limited you to three things only. The question is, if the ALP had its own snow globe, what would be inside it? Uh, let me think. Well... Well, it has to be a light on the hill. Okay. That, that's got to be... Is the hill counted as one of the things? <laughs> uh, uh, well, the, uh, the light is, and, and, and it's got to be flanked by... Well, Chifley, I suppose, has to be there, but, mm, but I so feel like curtain should be there. I'm th- going to struggle to make it three. Um, <laughs> and I feel like Bob should be there, but now there's a really lot of blokes. Really blown out, so yeah. So <laughs> Julia probably needs to be there as well. I think that's fair. All right. Yeah. So you've, we've, I think we've gone from three to so, six. So well, maybe we can say, so, so hill... Mm-hmm. Light, that's the second that's, thing, and then yeah. a, a collection, of, collection prime of prime ministers surrounding okay. it. That's All right, the we third grouped thing. the prime ministers yeah. rather than the light and the yeah. hill. Although, if you grouped both, you could have another. Let's yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> Very good. I like that answer. Um, now, we've reached the end of the interview, Richard. We always finish with two things we finish with a lightning round of questions, mm-hmm. and then we, we also request a song. So, I'm going to dive right into the lightning round here. We'll ask you some rapid fire questions and get your response. I want to know your favourite city in Australia besides Geelong. Oh, gee, that's controversial. Don't say Canberra. It's not a city anyway. Well, maybe I'll say Cairns. Okay, yeah, good. And so my wife and I eloped to Cairns. Oh, wow, get out, really? Yes, so we we got married uh, in the Botanic Gardens there with two joggers as our witness. No, Uh, (laughs) that you... Picked up that day, no, did you yes, that tap yes. on the, the shoulder? The, the and celebrant, say, uh, I'd organised this with the celebrant. I said, the, I said to the celebrant, "Are you going to organise the witnesses?" And she said, "Yeah, leave it to me." We get to the botanic gardens. There's the three of us: the celebrant, Rachel, and I. Mm. I said, "Where are the witnesses?" She mm. said, "Don't worry." She wanders off into the gardens, <laughs> drags two joggers out who we've never met before and have never seen since, wow. but who are in our wedding photos. Amazing. Um, so, um, so that Cairns holds a special place in our heart. Fantastic. That's a great story. Mm. Uh, what's your favourite junk food? Uh, well, I, I KFC. Ah, okay. yeah. I, I try not to eat it, um, but it's definitely my favourite. They do junk have fantastic food. chips. Uh, well, but the the secret herbs and spices. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I am a vegan, Richard, so I can't sorry, get in. Sorry. I can't get in on the um, you know, what is a, a breast or thigh or leg or or wing. But um, it, I'll trust you on that. Uh, well, the thing, is, like you know, I've been to lucky enough to go to a lot of. Um, Restaurants, um, which provide <laughs> incredible experiences mm. and tastes, but 
there is nothing that compares <laughs> to that taste, which surely is the best thing that modern chemistry has ever been able to provide. I think <laughs> I think chemistry is the operative word. It is, it's, 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 what is, it's kind of like a food-like substance, isn't it, rather than it being food? I, I don't want to – I don't care whether there's MSG in there or not. It's, it tastes good. Okay. Uh, next question. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? Uh, not in public. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Uh, how many hours – of sleep do you need? Uh, I, I, I can get away with uh, six or seven. Um, I'm happier when it's eight. I like I'm, my sleep. I'm with you there. Mm. I think it's an underrated... There seems to be this thing amongst particularly... Don't take this the wrong way. Particularly men. Something mm. uh, that, you know, you're tough if you don't need sleep. Yeah. It's ri- completely ridiculous. I There's love my sleep. a biological function yeah. <laughs> that we are deeply dependent on. Yeah. Uh, in significant quantities. If there's a spider in your house, do you kill it or set it free? Ah, uh, well, that, we have rules about this. So, mm. um, I, I, I'm not. I don't like killing animals. So, the, except the, chickens for KFC. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're confronting me there. I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll sit in Apologies. blissful. I'll, I didn't I'll mean stay to in blissful denial about all that. But um, uh, so, what? I, if if we're in their environment, we leave them alone. Mm-hmm, if they're mm-hmm. in our environment and they're scaring you, then we are allowed to kill them. Okay, all right. So I'll, that's that's the rule in the house I'll because because the spiders do freak people out. <laughs> they do a bit, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that lightning round. That was fantastic, and I definitely learned something there. Mm. We are out of time. Thank you so much it's been a for pleasure, Claire. Thank you. being on Pod on the Hill. It has been a fantastic podcast mm. and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. I'm sure they have. To take us out, we'd like you to select a song and give us a bit of a background as to why you've chosen it. Well, so this was this was the one part of the interview where I was given a heads up um, and I really feel out of my depth. Mm. I, I've, I've faced a lot of difficult questions um, <laughs> from Barry Cassidy and, and the like, but this, <laughs> this is the one that's caused me the great stress. Indeed, the, the staff said, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get onto Spotify and, and, and give you a selection, at which point I wanted to know what Spotify was. Oh, right. So then that, you know you're really in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I'm going with an Elvis song. Great. Um, which maybe speaks to my my vintage um a little less conversation a little more action which maybe is is something of a motto going forward through to 2022 i think i see where you're going with that thanks so much richard miles thanks claire in me.